listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. My guest today, he's a he's a legend. You know, back when I recorded the show in Burbank, he came in. He was, I think, he was episode 106. Now I'm on 806, and he came into the studio in Burbank, and I was so flattered because I saw him on TV. You know, all the time. He's been on TV so many times, and when he said on Facebook that he'd do my show. It made me happy. And I got a message from him the other night, and he said about his book. And I said, well, we got to come and we talk about it. So my guest is the one and only Tom Dreesen. How you doing, Tom? I'm doing good, Coop. Um, yeah, I, I, I um, saw that, you know, that uh, you wanted me to be on your show, and then I started becoming suspect of your sanity, you know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm here. I'm here to try to appease your mental derangement, thinking that I'm, important enough to be on your show Coop. was that humble was that humble? Well, that was very humble. you know you know what's funny i'm gonna tell you the one thing that stuck with me uh in our interview the first time is you know people you live in la i lived in la for a long time people are always name dropping and you sat there with i mean besides the sinatra relationship you sat there and in in matter of fact not being a pompous jerk and you happen to sit there and say two of your best friends are Clint Eastwood and David Letterman, and now how how do you how do you deal with that? Like they're huge. I mean, how did you, how did you become such good friends with those two? Are you trying to say that I'm not huge enough to be their friend? <laughs> 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 uh, no, you know, you know, I, I appreciate that. That you know, um, what happened was before I talked to you about that, I was on an interview, and the guy said something that no one had ever asked me before, and it kind of. It, kind of struck me and I didn't think about it myself he said three of the most private people in the world in the world of show business three of the most private were Frank Sinatra Clint Eastwood and David Letterman and you were a good friend of all of those how did that come about and, and I it took me back for a second and I said gee I don't know I mean when you think about it I don't know I, I, I guess because I made them laugh I don't know and, and also I can keep a secret you know uh, but but uh, and, and it, it would happen David and I met 45 years ago in, in front of the comedy store. And I'm going to tell you a funny story about that in just a minute. Um, and then, of course, Frank Sinatra, I toured with for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. And we became real close. And then toward the end of his life, I mean, I stayed at his home all the time, six times a year. At, when, he, when he passed away, I, was, I spoke at his funeral, and I was a pallbearer at his funeral. And Frank Sinatra actually introduced me to Clint Eastwood 35 years ago. And for some reason, Clinton and I hit it off. And I think it's because he was a kid from Oakland, and I was a kid from the south side of Chicago. I said pins and bowling alleys. He said pins and bowling alleys. If you mention that today to any young kid, they have no idea what you're talking about, setting pins, you know. <clears throat> In fact, one of the biggest laughs I ever got from Johnny Carson, I jump all over the place here, Coop, forgive me, but um, on my monologue one night, I, I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, and this was one of those nights that one of my lines was, how poor my family was. I had eight brothers and sisters and how poor we were. My whole family was wiped out when automatic pin setters came in and Carson roared at that line. But the audience for the most part were young people and stared at me like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, however, so they, they all became and two are still friends. And, and Frank, I, I believe it or not, I talk to every day. I'll walk by his picture or, you know, you see behind me is his painting. Marcelo Nero, a famous artist from Buenos Aires, captured this for me. He Every night when I appeared with Frank in the casinos in Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City, whenever I finished my show and said, good night, everybody, as I the band was playing me off stage right, Frank would enter stage right, and we would crisscross. And I would go into the wings, he'd go to center stage, and he'd say, come back and take another bow. Tommy Dreesen, ladies and gentlemen, he'd say some complimentary things. And I'd come out and take a half bow and, and wave at him. Well, Marcelo, Marcelo Nero captured this in a painting. That's me coming back out on stage, and and uh, I, I, I treasure this. So it's a painting that I have in my living room. I use it now as a backdrop. And now I'm going to add one more story, and then I'll let you talk, Coop, because after all, this is that's the name of the show. But my David Letterman favorite story, I got a 100 of them. But he calls me about two months ago. We talk probably twice a week. You know, he's still a good buddy, but... He calls me about two months ago and he said, you know what, Tom, every time I do an interview or you do an interview, you always tell the same story about how we met. And I tell the same story. 
you came off stage one night at the comedy show. It was my first night in LA, and I was out in the parking lot, and I complimented you on your set. And we started up a conversation. We've been friends ever since. I said, yeah. He said, well, it's a boring story. <clears throat> I said, well, it's the truth. He said, I don't care. It's boring. He said, from now on, when people say, how do we meet? I'm going to say, you came off stage at the comedy store. I was in a par parking lot. I stole some of your material, and you beat the hell out of me in the parking lot. <laughs> I said, now, why would I tell a story like that? He said, because it's a better story. Uh, and I said, Dave, you had 32 million fans. Do you, want, you think I want them chasing me through airports and stuff like that? He said, I don't care. I'm going to tell it. It's a better story. So now, two weeks go by, and he calls me, and he said, do you know the governor of Illinois? And I said, I don't know him. I met him, but I don't know him. And he said, well, he had a, a personal problem that he wanted to rectify. A family friend of theirs had an issue in Illinois, and Dave wanted to talk to the governor. I said, I do know the majority leader, uh, John Cullerton, and, and I said, I'll talk to him. And I called John Cullerton, my friend. And he said, oh, sure, I'll talk to Dave. He said, we got legislation on that, and, and Dave, Dave's going to be all right. His issue is going to be all right. Um, I said, okay. So I gave him, I said, do you mind if Dave calls you? And he said, no, I don't mind at all. So I called Dave, and I said, call John Cullerton, and, uh, you know, and he'll rectify this. He's, he's got the answer for you. But in the meantime, I told John Cullerton before I hung, hung up on him, I said, John, when you help Dave out, tell Dave the only reason you're helping him is because Dreesen beat the hell out of you in the parking lot at the comedy store. And that's why you're helping him. Now, so he said, sure, he's a good guy. Now, 10 minutes go by and the phone rings. I, it's Dave. I go, hello. He goes, Didn't I tell you that's a better story? I told you that's a better story. <laughs> now, you, you have this book. You came out still standing my journey from streets and saloons to the stage in Sinatra. I have a copy of your book of Tim and Tom. What made you decide now to write a book? Was did were people pursuing you saying you got to write a book, Tom? Or, or what point do you decide? Because you have the stories, you've had a, a phenomenal career. What makes you sit down and then write a book? And are you worried because you know there's so much you want to put in and you don't want to shortchange people? I mean, what was the process? Well, let me digress on your answer so people who don't know that are listening to your show, and I know there's millions that listen to your show, and that's the only reason I'm doing it. It's a career move for me. <laughs> it, might, it might knock you out of the business, but, but we, Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows we were the last. There's never been another one, and we were the first. And we wrote a book a while back called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. It was 15 years ago. And in fact, that book now, people are talking about maybe doing a series, either on Netflix or home box office or something about a six one hour series about what it was like touring the nation as the first black white comedy team. And there were no comedy clubs in those days. We worked all black clubs in the North and the South. And we worked all white night clubs in the North and South and paid dues that no other comedy team ever had to pay. And so they're, they're interested in maybe doing a series on it because we had a lot of fun. And by the way, it was no different than What's going on now? In 1968-69, there were riots all over the United States. Uh, African-Americans rioting in every major city, feeling disenfranchised from the system. And also the Vietnam War protests. And Tim and I, in the middle of this, were trying to make people laugh. And we, we did anywhere there was racial tension, we'd go there. <clears throat> we, we, if we went to high schools and colleges. We didn't lecture. We, we tried to make people laugh. We, we did our comedy routines. And... Uh, we did 11 prisons in one year. We did county jails. Anywhere there was racial tension, we'd go try to make people laugh. So that was the basis of that book. Now, my book, it's, as you pointed out, is still standing, my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. I've been knocked down a lot in my life. And in the book, if you read it, physically knocked down. Um, and But I kept getting back up and literally knocked down as well, as most stand-up comedians will tell you, the road to... You know, that moment, that moment that you can say, I am a stand-up comedian, I arrived. It's a tough, lonely struggle, especially for a guy who started out in show business with a wife and three kids. So I was knocked down, rejected. Uh, my wife left me three times. She hated show business and didn't want me in it. When she married me, I wasn't in show business, so she, that wasn't the life she chose. But I toughed it out and struggled it out, and that's what the book is about. It's basically a little boy, which I was one time, with a shoeshine box in his hand, trudging through the snow in his neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, a suburb called Harvey, Illinois, going from tavern to tavern, shining shoes to try to make money to help feed his brothers and sisters. 
and while he's on his hands and knees, he hears Frank Sinatra on the jukebox. And that little boy, that journey the book is, it takes you from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra on a jukebox in Harvey, Illinois, to one day carrying Frank Sinatra's coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So it's a journey there and all the hardships and the joys in between. And, and it, it's a fun book, uh, but it's, uh, and it's getting, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to pat myself in the back, but it's getting rave reviews on Amazon.com. You can get the book on Amazon.com, but it's getting rave reviews on Amazon. Because it's, it's all honest. I didn't hold anything back. And, and, uh, and I told it the way in the language that it was told. And, I, and, and a lot of interesting stories, my years in the service and, and my growing up and, and uh, you know, the Tim and Tom years and getting on Johnny Carson, touring with Sammy Davis Jr., touring with uh, Natalie Cole and Gladys Knight and Pips, touring with um, Smokey Robinson, and eventually touring with Frank Sinatra for 14 years. And stories in there no one has ever heard before, but honest and painful. Now... What you know? What made you decide to go into stand-up, though? I know you were shining shoes, and you heard you know Sinatra, so it probably gravitated you towards being the entertainment. But were you a funny kid, or I mean, what made you? Because it's a step. Like when I did comedy, you know, I did it for ten years, and I would, and I do it occasionally now. But I remember in college, I would sit there, go, "I'm going to do comedy," and my mom saw this class, how to get on stage, and so I did it, and I took it. But I always listened to you know, comedy, and I watched The Tonight Show, and that gravitated me towards it. What gravitated you towards it? Because as you said earlier, there were no real comedy clubs when you started. Well, first of all, I, I, was I a funny guy when I was growing up? Yeah, but <clears throat> my when I was shining shoes in all the bars, in the last bar I went to, my mother was a bartender there, and her brother-in-law, my uncle, owned the tavern. And he would tell jokes behind it. I'd go there last, waiting for the shifts to change from the factory, and when they change, I go back out to the bars. And my my uncle would tell jokes behind the bar. I was fascinated. He was a great joke teller and storyteller. I was fascinated that with his vocabulary, with his vernacular and his inflection, he could cause the whole room to erupt in the laughter. And the, the room would fill the laughter would fill the room like electricity and uniting everybody in the room. They would all stop to hear his jokes. And that fascinated me. And I told, I used to tell his jokes, many that should not be told on the Catholic school playground, you know, but, but I, I told him. And so I always liked telling jokes. However, I never thought of ever being in show business. I was in the military. I, I, I was the funny guy aboard ship. I was always telling the joke or two. Um, but um, I, I never, it was the furthest thing from my mind. I came out of the service, got married, kids, one kid after another, I had three kids. And I'm wandering from job to job and, and wandering aimlessly. I was a truck driver. I was a I was a bricklayer's helper. I wheeled concrete, cleaning basements. I mean, doing pouring basements and sidewalks. I um, was a photographer. I was a private detective. Uh, I was a bartender always at nighttime in, in Chicago. A second job, and I, uh, I I loaded trucks on a on a loading dock and was a Teamster union. I dropped my Teamster card and uh, later became management. Um, but I I was not fulfilled. I, and I used to pray. I would honestly pray. I said, God, what am I supposed to be doing? This can't be it. Um, I, I didn't get a bar at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. My buddies on a Friday night looking around saying, I don't belong here. But I didn't know where I belonged. I was puzzling. And I, and I honestly prayed. I would pray. I'd say, God, show me the way. What am I supposed to do? Anyhow, I joined a civic group called the JCs. In those days, called the Junior Chamber of Commerce. It was young men, 18 years old and 36, who helped the community um, by attacking, attacking the problems of the community and helping resolve them. They taught you how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, how to Robert's Rules of Order, how to conduct meetings, and how to speak in front of an audience. And, and anyhow, so I got very active in that, and I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse through humor, a concept I had of making the kids laugh and then playing records and then planting the seeds when you got them relaxed, planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse in our particular community. They weren't teaching drug education in those days at a college or a high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. And I proposed this project to the JCs, and a young black man joined the chapter that night, and he heard me proposing it, and he wanted to work with me on it. To show you how fate is, and my prayers were answered, I said, I'm sorry, I already got a guy, a friend of mine named John DeBoer, a white guy. And the next morning, John DeBoer called me and said, I can't do that project with you, Tom. 
He said, uh, I got a new job. And I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. And I called him up. Tim and I worked on this project together, getting it together, went into the classrooms. The moment we walked into the classroom, I realized what a blessing it was because the children were black and white. And when we walked in the classroom, we got their attention right away. We were two young guys. And we played off of one another, making each other laugh, making the kids laugh, playing music. And then we planted the seeds of the, of the illness of drug abuse. The program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries through JC Publications. They use it as a model program uh, on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And one day, leaving the classroom, a little eighth grade girl was walking out of the classroom and she said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So, you know, we started writing what we thought was material. And, and, and we for like three or four months, we finally had the courage enough to go into a club. We, and we got up. Something that I had written got a laugh. It got a big laugh. And on stage, as you know, Coop, because you've been up there, all of a sudden, my whole being, my whole body went, oh, yes. It was like an epiphany, like the, when those B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through. <laughs> my whole being, I said, yes. Oh, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to be a stand-up comedian. Now, I, that was a Friday night. I couldn't sleep all night long. I was so excited. I got up in the morning, and I went to the church that I was, had been an altar boy at, and my, I sang in the choir when I was a little boy. And I actually got down on my hands and knees, and I prayed. I said, God, I now know what I want to do. I want to be a comedian. God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, the thought that you can make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. God, if you if I can make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything more. I, I, I you know I'll do charities. I was making all these promises. Well, that was fifty years ago, and uh, and I'll close it with this. On my fiftieth anniversary, September nineteen sixty nine, I went on stage. September twenty nineteen, fifty years later, I went back to Chicago. I went back to the South Side. I went to that church and I gave a sermon on the power of prayer, and I told the audience. I said, 50 years ago, I got on my knees right over there, and I prayed, God, if you let me make my living as a stand-up comedian, I'll never ask for anything more. And God answered that prayer. And here I am 50 years later. Long answer to a short question. No, you know, it's funny. I, I know, I know. well, with you and Tim, it was very groundbreaking, because, you know, we still now have racial inequality. For you guys, back at that time, what was it like trying to get work? Did you not get work because people were like, we don't want a black guy with a white guy? I mean, did you run into those, did you run into issues back then? Because as you said, it was newfound and it was a different time. Well, for the most part, 95% of people liked us and liked what we did. And and, and it intrigued them. When we'd walk out on stage, sometimes people would know that there's a comedy team at Tim and Tom, we'd walk out and a hush would come over the audience because they had never seen this before. But for the most part, people like what we did. But there was that one tiny element. You know, when people say this racism exists in America, of course it does. Not monumental. We're a great nation. We really are a great nation. We, we've, we've had problems, but we also have overcome those problems. But there's always that one element that wants to keep us divided. <clears throat> it's called divide and conquer. And they will go out of their way if they see two people getting along. And it doesn't have to be two people of color, of different color. It'd be sometimes people just don't like to see people get together, that one element. So if we worked an all-black club where there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. If we worked an all-white club where there was a redneck who hated black people, he wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with Tim. So I was the N-word lover, you know, and, and those kind of things. So, But we overcame all that. You know, we had, we had skirmishes sometimes, but for the most part, people really liked what we did. Uh, but Tim later wanted to be more of an actor, and the team split up. And and I write about that in my book, how the team split up, and how I end up having to go alone. I had never been on stage by myself before. And it was a real, uh, I was sitting in a bar with my buddies, 2 o'clock in the morning, they were closing up the place, and I had like two beers in front of me. And, and I, what am I going to do? <clears throat> the team split up. My wife wanted me to get out of Chauvin's. Finally, it's over. Get a job. You know, every comedian out there will tell you they've had these kind of skirmishes with their family or, or, or their spouse. But my wife said, now, get a job in a factory and let's stop this crazy dream of yours. And I'm sitting in the bar and I'm thinking, okay, what can I do? I'm thinking I could get another black guy and do the same act. I could quit show business and get a job in a factory like my wife wants me to do. Or I could go it alone. And sitting at the bar, I said, I'm going to go it alone. 
that's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> I'm going to go to loan. And I said, uh, setting goals because I've always been that way. I want to get to the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show. In those days, that's where you had to go if you wanted to get discovered by America. So I, I was sitting at the bar, and, and I set up my mind, that's what I'm going to do. And I remember a book I read one time by W. Clement Stone called Positive Mental Attitude. And he said, if you know what you want in life, and it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement and get it out of your life. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to make it as a stand-up comedian? What could stop me? And I thought, I said, alcohol. I love drinking beer. I love hanging out with the guys and drinking beer. I said, I'm getting that. I'm out. I pushed the two beers in front. And I said, I'm, I quit. My buddy who was standing by came down. He said, you quit, Tommy? I said, I'm through. I quit. He said, through for the night. I said, no, I quit. He said, you what? I said, I quit for good. Drinking never anymore. He went, yeah, right. I'll see you here tomorrow night. And I never touched another drop. So I was doing tonight shows and very successful all around the country. One night I had a beer and it didn't taste good. And I don't drink now. How, how did you end up on the Tonight Show? What your first appearance? And everyone, you know, it, that's like one of those things. Like everybody remembers that first appearance and the nerves, and then you know, and then once you get that first laugh, the wave that you roll into. But was it hard for you to get on the Tonight Show for the first time? Were people going that you knew? Were your peers getting on instead of you? I mean, how did it happen? Well, first of all, it's, I was saying to the younger people who do not know. In 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? If you haven't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one or going to be one, but you weren't one now. So everybody had to get to that show. That was a, We had a, a goal to stardom was that show. And, and um, in fact, Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show. We got a sitcom the next day. All of us migrated out to the West Coast. All the comics are all around the country. <clears throat> because Johnny Carson had been in New York in 1972, he came to the West Coast. And he's out here in California. And everybody knew that you did one appearance on The Tonight Show as a comedian, you're on your way. 26 million people watched that show a night in those days. So we all gravitated out here, the Lenos and the Lettermans. I struggled to get on at the comedy store. I ended up sleeping in an abandoned car. That's in the book. It wasn't my car. It was an old Nash Rambler where the front seat goes out. I wash up in a gas station every morning. My wife and kids were in Chicago. I was struggling. And I hitchhiked to the comedy store every night, begging to work for free every night to try to get on and couldn't get on. Funny, after a month, I got an audition with Mitchie, the owner of that comedy store. And, and I, I did a good five minutes. And she put me on the regular schedule late at night. But I worked my way into the system until I only one of the headliners of the comedy store, but you're still trying to get the Tonight Show to come and see you. That was not easy because I didn't have a manager. But I went to a lot of shenanigans and I finally got them to come and see me. And Craig Tennis was a talent coordinator. He was looking at three people that night, a comedy team called Baum and Eston. Uh, Bruce Baum is still out there. He's doing it by himself now. And, and a new kid named Billy Crystal. I don't know whatever happened to him. Uh, and, and me. And, uh, and I'll tell you a great show, but the story, out in front of the comedy show that night, I pulled up on a Tuesday night, I got I got there and I thought, gee, I hope there's a big crowd because, you know, you know, comedians, we need a big crowd to make it work. Well, the, out in front was about 120 people. And I went, oh, wow, wow, on a Tuesday night. What I didn't know was when I got out, when I got off the bus there and I looked, there was Carl Reiner and there was um, Mel Brooks. There was all these big stars. I'm going, wait, my God, well, Rollins and Javi, uh, the management firm was managing Billy Crystal. And they brought all these people from all the shows, to, uh, casting directors, everything, to watch Billy. And they were wise management. They weren't going to let them go inside the club till Billy went on. They weren't showcasing me or Baum and Eston, you know. Uh, God forbid that one of us would get discovered by somebody they brought there. And, and by that, that's right. I mean, that's good management. So they kept them outside. So when I went on, I went on in front of about 20 people. Billy went on to a packed house in uh, but I, I did well. And the guy, uh, Craig Tennis, took me outside and said, uh, I'm, uh, I want you to come to my office tomorrow and show me. I saw you do 20 minutes. Show me the five minutes you would do if I put you on a Tonight Show. So I went into the office the next morning, and, I, I, and at his desk, I said, I'll do this routine, that routine. He said, okay, take that one line out. Put another one. I did it again and again, and he said, you got it. You're on next Tuesday. Now, in that next week, you don't eat for a week. Yeah. I finally get there. I get there, I get in makeup, they take you upstairs to your dressing room, then they bring you down to the green room, 
and you're getting ready to go on. They came in and said, we ran out of time. We had to bump you. Come back next week. I came back the next week, makeup, in my dressing room, down to the green room, getting ready. We ran out of time. They bumped me three times like that. On the fourth time, I'm in the makeup room. Fred DeCorda, the producer, came in and he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> you get a lump in your throat. They walk you behind. When it comes time, they walk you behind that curtain. The stagehands, you know, when you're a veteran, you know, like after I started doing the Tonight Show Live, they'd see me. they go, hey, Dreeson, how's your Cubs? Hey, Tommy, have a good one, Tommy. But your first time, as you're walking, get behind that curtain, they see you coming. They all turn their heads and they go, it's his first time. It's his first time. They're whispering, you know, because they know it's a moment. You get behind that curtain. Doc Severinsen's playing. The band is in commercial break. They're in commercial break. The band's playing. And the coordinator said, you okay? She said, yeah. And he leaves you alone. Now you're back there all alone in that dark darkness there. And the band is playing. Now the music stops coming back on live. And your heart stops. Now the curtain lightens up and behind in front of you. And you're getting ready. And you hear Johnny say, now you're in front of the curtain ready to walk out. Johnny said, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Well, you're welcome, Tom Dreesen. That one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. Johnny set the tone. They open up that curtain. You walk out there. There's a mark you're supposed to hit on the floor. You know, they tell you about it earlier. You walk out there. Now you can't see the audience. A bright light just like you're in an operating room. And, the, you know, the audience applauding. Now, you get that first joke out and it got a laugh. I got that second joke out, it got a laugh. I got that third joke out, it got a laugh. Now I hear Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. Now I get applause and applause. Now I'm on a roll. I, I got like eight applause. I closed with, I said, you've been a marvelous audience. Show business is a tough life. Uh, if you like me, just if you like me, it's my first appearance on Sanctuary. If you like me, just if you like me, and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, we appreciate it. I get a big applause. I go out through the curtain and the coordinator come running around the corner. Go back, go back, go back. I said, go back by Johnny. Don't go by Johnny. Just go back. I, I walk out through the curtain. They call me out for a second bow. Johnny put that little circle that he with his fingers, you know, like that. And, and you go back and my whole life changed. I was on unemployment the day before, struggling, wife and three kids. But from that, that day on, I never stopped working. And that was, you know, 40-something years ago. I never stopped working. Um, I, I was doing Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train. I'm the only white comedian ever do Soul Train. I did, uh, you know, all, American Bands, all those shows, Hollywood Squares, it's $20,000 pyramid. I, I was touring, next thing you know, Sammy Davis Jr. watched me on the road with him. And then all these other artists. And, and I, I just never stopped working since. Now, how did you meet Frank? Being glib one night, I was... Touring, after touring with Sammy Davis for years, I started touring with different artists. Like I told you, Gladys Knight, the Pips, Natalie Cole, Mac Davis, Tony Orlando and Don, James Darren, Frankie Avalon. All these guys had families coming to see their shows, these singers. They needed a comic in front of them that wouldn't offend their audience, that wouldn't work blue, as you know the term for your audience that doesn't know what working blue means, using swear words or, or sexual uh, 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 connotations. And so they needed a comic like that. And so I was in demand. I was constantly doing those shows because you had to work clean to get on TV so they'd see you on all these shows. And I'm touring all over the country with all these guys. And I started touring with Smokey Robinson. And I toured with Smokey for a couple of years. And we were at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. And Frank Sinatra was appearing next door at Harris, two doors away. And I was a big Frank Sinatra fan and had seen him perform a couple of times. And wow, you know, when he walked out to a microphone, before he sang a note, he created more excitement than most acts do with their whole act. So I, I rushed off stage one night, and why I picked that night, another fate thing. I was there for a week. I could have went any night. For some reason, I wanted to go on a particular night. As I came off stage, I, I didn't even change out of my stage clothes. I ran out, out of Caesar's back door over to Harris. I'm running into the showroom to catch Frank because I, I didn't want to miss it, him walking to that microphone. As I'm running into the showroom, the um, vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, saw me, and he was talking to a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And he said, Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. And I said, yeah, Holmes. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer, a very powerful guy. And he had a cigar in his mouth. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dries. And I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard it a million times. And he said, he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 
I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> He started laughing. He said, I like this kid. And uh, and a week later, I get a call. Uh, would you like to do one week with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City? And I thought, yeah, I'll work with him. I'll try to get my picture taken with him. I'll hang at every bar back in Chicago, and I'll be a hometown hero. And the second night, I worked with him. He and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And I remember like it was yesterday, It was I was sitting across from him. He set his knife and his fork down. And he said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah. And it turned into 45, 50 cities a year, a friendship that I'll, I'll never, ever, ever forget. And, 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 you, and toward the end, he was like a father to me. And like I told you, I was a pallbearer and I spoke at his funeral. And, and I miss him every day of my life. What, what was it that you think that made you guys bond so well and become good friends because you know how it is when you work with people on the road i mean as you would say you know you'd work with someone and then you wouldn't see them for like eight months then you do a weekend with them and it's just like you just saw them but what was it that made you and frank gel was it something i mean what was it that made him respect you because he was the biggest star in the world at one time and you know and it's something that you know he's probably so used to people catering to him all the time and was it something that you just you just had an instant chemistry, or what? What do you think made that you guys such close friends? One of, one of the things Frank Sinatra never knew, he never knew how much in awe of him I was, because I would never let him see that side. I picked up on that right away. I don't know whether from being a bartender or whatever. I have this sixth sense about things sometimes, but I picked up on it right away. He had millions of fans. He didn't need another fan. He didn't need people gushing over him. I did my job. I did what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to continually changing material because we went to the cities, same cities all the time. I, I did my job. Um, and, 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 uh, and I was professional the way he was about the show. The show to him was the most important thing. You didn't fool with the show. You want to party all night? He'd party with you. But showtime, everybody better know their job because he knew his. I mean the band and, and, and everybody. Everybody know their job. And, and you opening act. So I think that, and then after a while, he saw that I wasn't gushing all over. I, mean, I did, you know, once in a while I'd say, hey, great crowd tonight or something like that. But we started, at first he was the boss of the tour, which he was. Everybody knew, he, you know, he ran the tour, of course, it was his show. And then later he became like a buddy. Hey, hey tell me, let's go get something, tell me this. We'd hang out. He stayed up till dawn every night. He never went to bed till the sun came up. His whole life, whether we were on the road or off the road, he was nocturnal. And I'd hang with him sometimes and and, and we became closer like buddies, and toward the end, like I say, he was like a father. But I really think there's a couple of things when I think about I had three children, girl, boy, girl. He had three children, girl, boy, girl. Uh, I'm half Sicilian. He was half Sicilian. I'm Irish Italian. You know, um, you know he was full of Italian, but he was half Sicilian. I, I don't know. He grew up around saloons. His mom and dad owned a saloon. I grew up in taverns. You know, my mother was a bartender. Um, I'm a street kid. I don't have a degree from academia. I got a doctorate from the streets. And Frank didn't have a degree from academia either, but he was a street guy. And when he was Frank Sinatra, this huge star, until we were alone in the car. When we were alone in the car riding around in the desert till the sun came up many nights, I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois, on the south side of Chicago, and he was a kid from Hoboken. And that's what we talked about. We talked about growing up, the streets, the pool rooms, the guys, you know, the neighborhood. And, uh, and then sometimes other personal things. But I don't know. I, I think that, I don't know. Barbara, his wife, used to say all the time that how, how fond he was of me, that he, I made him laugh. You know, by the way, I love making Frank Sinatra laugh. When he laughed, his eyes, he had those blue eyes. When people call him old blue eyes, you don't know until you're sitting with him, looking right into his eyes. They were the most crystal blue eyes I've ever seen in my life. It wasn't like normal blue eyes. They were like crystal blue <laughs> eyes. You know? And, uh, and, and, and you know, so when I made him laugh, those eyes would sparkle, you know. I enjoyed making them laugh. You know? Now, what was it like, though, going out with someone like that? Like, when, you know, you go get something to eat. I mean, you, you, when you're in the public eye, he must have started, maybe, did he ever get a little jaded just because it must, be, it must have been a lack of privacy because everybody knew him? Yeah, he, he had to, you know, people say, you know, you can't interrupt him. He wouldn't be able to finish a meal. Frank wouldn't be able to finish a sentence. Because everywhere he went, the, the people would want to be around him. But here's the thing. He wasn't going to let that stop him from going out. Like Elvis living in an ivory tower. You know, he would always post security. Or he'd go to a restaurant where he knew the restaurant owner would not allow 
Frank's meal could be interrupted every five minutes. Oftentimes on the way out, he would sign autographs. He called them signatures. He said, I'll give him my signature. You know, it's funny, you know, I said that, but, but, you know, he, he was well aware of this, this notoriety he had, you know, he was, he was a, a, could be a complex guy, but, you know, he was well aware of, of his celebrity and he handled it well in, 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 in so many ways. And sometimes it just got like when the paparazzi would come around, it would be too much for him. He couldn't handle all the pictures and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was just too much for him. He, you know, he, he was, um, I, I, I don't know. He was a charitable guy. Uh, he, he, again, being around him, you're, you're trying to answer your question about, you know, he he had been in rarefied air most of his adult life, you know, growing up, rarefied air, you know, I hadn't been, when I was around him, I had never been in that kind of rarefied air. You know, you'd go to his house, I'm getting off the subject, saying, but you'd go to his compound, it wasn't a house, down in Rancho Mirage, it was a huge compound with, with big, big fences around it and a security gate. Inside that compound was a main house where he lived, but on the outer perimeters were all these bungalows. Named after his songs, New York, New York, Strangers in the Night, Tender Trap, My Way. And you'd go there for a weekend. Sometimes his house guests would be Gregory Peck and his wife, Bernie, Kirk Douglas and his wife, Ann, uh, Clint Eastwood and whoever he was dating at the time, uh, uh, Jack Lemon, and, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, and his wife, Felicia. Uh, it would be uh, Larry Gelbard and his wife, Pat. It would be uh, Sidney Portier and his wife, Joanne. I mean, Robert Wagner, Joe St. John, Angie Dickinson. I would look at these people and go, oh my God, these are people I would saw in the movies when I was growing up in Harvey, Illinois. These would be, and they were the most sensible, not celebrity acting people. They were so comfortable in their own skin. Not like the celebrity spoiled brats we have in Hollywood now that sip off of a bus and get a sitcom two weeks later and think that you've got to roll the red carpet out for them every time you see them. And then after one week, uh, one year on a sitcom, they now are uh, experts in foreign affairs. They now can tell the government how to run the government, you know, because they've been on a sitcom for a year. <laughs> the most spoiled, pampered brats in the world live out here in Hollywood. But that's not who was Frank's friend. Those people I just mentioned were just, they, they all got along. They, they, they were comfortable in their own skin. So, you know, again, they, they, you learn how to handle your celebrity if you handle it right. If you don't know how to handle it, you go into drugs and alcohol and, and, uh, and try to destroy yourself because you think you don't belong there. You know? Now, in your book, do you go into anything about the comedy store strike back in the day? Because cause comics, you know, the comics, that's anything. You know, it always comes to money. Well, that's comics. It's like, hey, what are you going to, wait, I remember a guy said to me once, he goes, I want you to close the show. I said, all right. I said, how much are you going to pay me? He goes, 75. And I said, well, I can make 125 to feature down the street and I'll get out earlier. And, you know, because we always sit there with the money. But what, 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 what was the comedy store strike about? What was that all? Explain that to the listeners. Well, and that, that's in the book, too. Um, you know, and there's another book called I'm Dying Up Here by Bill Needleseeger, who really covers that strike. Nothing but the strike. But what happened is the comedy store, you know, it started out, Mitzi inherited, got it to a divorce. And it, in the comics, we all worked there for free. And the comedy store became very, very successful. Now, it was the hottest place in the United States for stand-up comedy, Sunset Boulevard. You know, thousands of cars going by every day at the comedy store. And every night and every night at the comedy store, young comedians are on. People from all those shows I mentioned earlier, all the talent coordinators, all the casting people for sitcoms were coming to the comedy store every night. Every night, somebody got discovered. It was really an exciting time. She got so good, she opened up another comedy store in Westwood and then one in San Diego. But they still didn't pay anything. You worked for free. I, now, by that time, I did my first, I was the first one to break out of there uh, for the Tonight Show. You know, later came Letterman. Every night I'd be on stage with all these unknown comedians at the comedy store. David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, Gallagher, Michael Keaton. The girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger, you know. Um, this was, you know, this was the way it was in those days. And I, I broke out first doing the Tonight Show. Now I'm on the road with Sammy Davis. I'm making a lot of money. I'm coming home on weekend. Whenever I mean, when the week was over, the gig, I'd come home and I'd try out new material at the comedy store because I was doing all these TV shows. Well, every night you went there, they put you in the original room. Mitchie had a main room that she had purchased from the previous owner that seated 420 people. 
But in there, she would give it to Rodney Dangerfield and he would get the door or Jackie Mason and he would get the door, you know, whatever. She would get the liquor and, and he would get, they would get the door. If they charged $25 at the door or $20, they got the door. So we worked for free in the original room. So I come off the road and I go into the original room and they tell me, they said, Tom, uh, you're not here. You're in the main room. I said, the main room? I go in the main room and there's five comedians, Elaine Boozler, me, Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman. Now the place was packed. Now afterward, we go to Cantor's, I'll hang out and Jay Leno came in and he said, hey man, you know, it may took five of us to pack the place, but we packed it. Shouldn't we get some of the door? You know, not work for free now. Everybody starts arguing. They decide to have meetings. I go to the meetings. I'm making money. I'm buying. You know, I'm, I don't need to, to go on site. But these are my friends. And at the meetings, they were all in chaos. No, you got 120 comedians all talking at the same time. The only thing they decided was go to another meeting. Went to another meeting. Chaos. I finally got up and said, look, I was in the JCs. Let me show you how to run start sharing the meeting and getting everybody calm down, forming committees, Robert's Rules of Order, and hold it, hold it, Gallagher, hold it, Jay's got the floor, Jay, okay, make your point, okay, do we second that motion, doing that kind of stuff. I got them organized. Now, they want to get paid. I go and I negotiate with Mitzi. I said, Mitzi, and Mitzi and I were friends. I like Mitzi a lot. And yeah, she was adamantly against paying the comedians. Absolutely not. They don't deserve to be paid. No, absolutely not. This is a college. This is a showcase club and all that stuff. Anyway, I said, but Mitchie, you're charging at the door. You know, let the comics sit now. Finally, one time I said, look, you're charging $5 at the door. Charge 6 and let them have the $1. You know, she said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. Anyhow, the comics vote to go on strike. And and these were kids that I, I grew up in poor neighborhoods. These kids were, came out of colleges. When you organized them, they were a force to be reckoned with. And they were well organized. And, and we went on strike at the comedy store. And it been over in 24 hours if all the comics stayed united but 19 comedians crossed the picket line they weren't any big names but but they crossed the picket line 18 guys and one girl and and uh and and that kept the strike going for almost eight weeks and finally the strike was settled after eight weeks of hardship and uh, a couple weeks later a comedian committed suicide because he couldn't get back on and and thus the book you know i'm dying up here uh but anyhow Comics, after that, comics were being paid all over the United States and all over the, in fact, in London, we got, you know, Telegram thanking us for, you know, because they got paid in London just because of our success. And now, of course, they, they pay, you know, something to get up, you know, now, not a lot. You, you also, you've done uh, performances for the military because you were in the military. What is it like when you perform? For, is, is, it, is it a feeling that you're giving back, and, and they just must appreciate you. How did you start doing, performing for the military? Well, because you put it out, I spent four years in the Navy, and I served in the Marine Corps unit, nine months, called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. And I remember when I was in the service, if somebody came and played harmonica, how thrilled we were, you know. So when I started doing, when I, when, even when I was with the comedy team, we'd go up to Great Lakes and, and the Naval Station, and we'd perform for the troops. They were the most receptive, wonderful audience. And so I just started doing it every chance I got. And I went to Iraq, you know, went to Fallujah and Al-Tagadam and Kuwait. And you can't, when those kids are over there, you know, you can't, it's just the most rewarding thing hearing their laughter. I say kids, these are trained combat veterans at 19 and 20, men and women. Uh, and it's just so exhilarating and rewarding to hear their laughter, you know. Uh, I, I Look, you know, do you know that half of 1% of the population of the United States are in the military now? Less than 1% of people keep our nation safe from all enemies, foreign and domestic. You know, uh, you, you take that oath and, and without them, you know, I'm, I'm a student of history. The thing that hurts me the most is when I go to college is how absolute little they know of why they have freedoms and how almost nothing they know about World War II. You know, if it wasn't for the United States military, there would be no United States of America. And that's a fact. That's a fact. There was no doubt what Adolf Hitler had in mind for this country. No doubt. We'd have been in concentration camps and there would have been, been mass, mass murders. There was no doubt what Imperial Japan had in mind for this country. Those men and women of World War II, what they did, those men and women, they saved this nation. They truly saved the United States of America. And young kids have no idea about it. I, if you... I've asked them questions. They haven't got a clue. They don't know the difference between, um, you know, Gettysburg and Iwo Jima. I mean, they really don't. And, and, and that's, that's sad. 
and, and I, I have a strong faith with the United States military. It's funny with the military. My father was in D-Day, and he was in the Navy, and uh, he never talked about it. And that's the one thing, like a lot of these guys never talked about it. But then years, when my father passed away a while ago, he would have been, he was born in 20, 1924. Years ago, they found all the guys from his battalion would meet in uh, Pigeon Ford, and it was like a big reunion. But they're all, at this time, they're already 60. They hadn't seen each other. It was before social media. And someone said, hey, Tom Cooper, do you remember him? And it's just funny that it was such a, uh, they were such a celebrated group. But you're right. A lot of people, you know, they don't even know, they don't even know what D-Day is. Like, if you ask younger people, they have no idea. And it's like, and you, and you can't explain it because you, you think, it's like trying to explain what a pork chop is. You know, you, you should just know what it is. It's not even, you know, and it's crazy. Yeah, it really, and it, hurt, it hurts me when I have to tell them that sometimes. You know, by the way, you know who also was at D-Day in the Navy? Yogi Berra. All right. Yogi Berra was a good friend of mine, so you, he might have been with your dad. Yogi brought troops ashore and was shot at and shot at and, and then go back and, you know, bring more troops and more troops. Yeah, but anyhow, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, and it's a shame, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't study your history, you know, and study, you know, what this nation is all about, the freedoms that we have here, there is really no country like the United States anywhere. The, the, the world depends on the United States. There are nations that would go, have gone in, into horrible situations had the United States not been there. So uh, uh, the, t- today, uh, you know, uh, people say you're, uh, you're a flag waver. You're damn right I am. You're damn right I am. And people say, do you believe in God? Yes, I do. You know. Out here in Hollywood, they look at you like you're something. You have leprosy when you say, "I love my country," or, or, or you know, or I believe in the United States military, or I even believe in God. You know, uh, it's like you're a pariah. You know, I don't know what it is, but uh, somehow our students have not been taught the history of this nation properly. You know, all they've been taught in colleges lately is that we're a horrible, horrible nation. You know, <laughs> that everybody. That you're wonderful, but everybody who preceded you is a piece of crap, you know. <laughs> now, now, do you do colleges a lot? Because I know you do a lot of uh, you do a lot of motivational speaking and corporate gigs. But do you do colleges because a lot of people seem that they don't really want to do colleges because it's just it's not what it used to be. No, it's not. Jerry Seinfeld. A lot of them say they won't work there. Chris Rock said he won't work colleges because they. They really don't get, you know, also, they're all in the political correctness now. They're being taught by their professors of, you can't say this and you can't say that, you can't say this. Well, we live in the United States of America, and all those hundreds of thousands of people, men and women, lost their lives. So you had the First Amendment, the right to say whatever you want. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to take that away from you. You, you. you can, we can say whatever we want. You don't have to listen to us. You can turn us off. You cannot pay to see us. But everybody has that right to say what they want to say. Now, you take a comedian and you tell a comedian, I want you to go on stage, but don't say this and don't say that. And by the way, don't say this. Whatever you do, don't say that. You just put that comedian in a box and he or she is no longer a comedian. You know, whenever people come up with this politically correctness crap, you know, oh, you shouldn't say that. Oh, be careful. Don't say that. I say, do me a favor. Go Dave Sh- tell Dave Chappelle that. I dare you to tell Dave Chappelle that he can't say anything he wants to say because he will stick it right in your ear. You know, he's a true stand-up comedian. He says whatever he wants to say. You don't have to agree with him. You can disagree with him. You know, a while back, Dave Chappelle said something about a conservative black woman named Candace Owen. And it was really vulgar what he said. Something, we don't want to get graphic here, but something vulgar. But he said it. And... When they came to her and said, oh, I bet you want him to say it. She said, no, he has a right to say whatever he wants to say. She said, I'm a big fan of Dave Chappelle. The, 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 the remark hurts a little bit, but he, he has a right to say whatever he wants to say. That's what it's really all about. You know, be careful. First of all, they start telling you what you can and cannot say. Then they start telling you what you can and cannot do. And then guess what? We're a socialist or a communist country. You know, when, when they start controlling your speech, pal, when you... That you, if you can go back to Lenny Bruce, they put him in jail. Remember that, right? Now, now, what is as a comic for you now, though? I mean, I know you. Well, you know, you had your show, the Zoom show. You do it. I know you did it by Zoom. The man who made Sinatra laugh. Can you still tell stories? And and is it still accepted? Or do you do you feel that you or even you, who's had such a 
legendary career. Are you getting censored at all? Oh, I mean, they, they would try to, but I tell, I, I always tell them, go see my agent, Dave Chappelle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, again, you know, yeah, I am, I say whatever I want to say on stage. I said whatever I want to say in the book. I said it as candid as I could in my, my book, Still Standing, available on Amazon.com. I just threw that in the book. Uh, but, you, you know, and I'll go that way to my grave. You know, this is my life. This is my time on this planet. And you're not going to tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. You know, I mean, aside from breaking the law, you know, I don't want to break the law, you know. And uh, when you make it a law in this country that the government can tell you what to say and what not to say, then I move out of this country because it isn't the America that I know. You know. But I, 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 I'm a stand-up comedian first, last, and always. First, last, and always. That's what I am. I found out what I was years ago, and I've been that way for the last 50 years. But I also give motivation speeches at universities. I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I elaborate on those four subjects. And, and uh, so I do that at colleges sometimes. I love to motivate young kids to be all they can be when they're on the threshold of going out into this wonderful country that we have. You know, that, that you're on the threshold of that. I like to motivate them to be all they can be, to, to, to search for that one moment in time. Now, the book, I'm going to get back to the book real quick. Was it hard to write? What I mean, is it something, is it hard to really share your soul and share your story? Because, you know, if someone writes a book and it gets a bad review, it hurts. But if, if you write a book about your life and it gets a bad review, it must sting. Because you're like, wait a second, man, I've had a great life. I mean, what, what, what finally, what was it like to sit down and write this book? To be honest with you, and I advise all the young comedians out there. No, I advise everybody in America, whether you're a housewife, a, a house, a, a man, housewife, or you're a truck driver, bricklayer, whatever you are, journal. Life is very, very exciting, and you're you're perceiving it from your your uh, foundation, from your eyesight. So journal. I would all the years I toured, I would if Sammy Davis Jr. said something I thought was funny or profound, I went back to my room and wrote it down. If you know, if, if I learned a lesson along the way, somebody taught me a lesson, I wrote it down. If I met an interesting uh, person on the airplane sitting next to me and they said something profound that helped change my I wrote it down. <clears throat> I was always journaling. And I started putting together these stories. And, and so when it came time uh, to write the book, it wasn't that hard. I had two guys help me with the narrative. You know, these are my words and, and, and I stand by every word, you know. But uh, so... It, was, it wasn't as hard as I thought. I started pouring my guts out, you know. But I wanted it to be honest. And and, uh, and, and I tell you, there's, the book is getting rave reviews on Amazon. If you go to Amazon.com, only one woman was upset with me because of the language. And, 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 and I, I would apologize to her. I don't know her. But she, she but, but all, all are five stars and, and just rave reviews. I probably got 30 or 40 reviews on there now. And, um, but, but, uh, but I said it candid. I didn't want to go in there and say, and then I said to him, oh, darn you, when I didn't say darn you, when I said fuck you, you know. Um, could I say that or are you going to? Oh, yeah, you can say that. I said, well, I mean, if, if there were times in my life where I lost it, you know. I'm Irish Italian. I boxed when I was in the service. I ain't the toughest guy in the world, but I, I, had, I had my nose broke twice in street fights. And, and I talk about that in the book. Uh, my, my whole life, why I studied those positive mental attitude books is because I had a quick temper. And I didn't want to be that way. I wanted to learn how to debate and how to have intellectual combat. I grew up in a neighborhood where everybody fought in bars. If two guys were arguing about the Cubs and the White Sox, they end up going in the alley throwing punches. You know, when I first went in the service and I saw guys into intellectual combat, it, it was fascinating to me that you could have debates like that. You know, So anyhow, that was what I, I, I struggled with. But I wanted to be honest in the book of what I actually said and what was actually said to me. And so... Uh, you know, uh, it, it isn't that bad, you know, but, but, uh, uh, but again, the, 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 you're right. You know what a critic is? A critic is someone who comes in after the battle is over and shoots the wounded. Right. <laughs> That's what a critic is. Well, and by the way, now that social media is here, everybody's a critic. Every guy stuck in the basement of his mother's house and he's 46 years old is in that basement in front of that computer telling you, you suck. You know, you, know, you know what's funny, and I think you'll appreciate this. You know, when I grew up, and even before social media took off, if you were if you were at a bar, and my father always said, don't talk about politics 
and alcohol, don't, you know, but if you're in a bar and you got into a little heated discussion with someone about politics and if they called you stupid or if you called them stupid, one of you would get punched in the face. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was something that you just learned. I think you learned how to debate. Like, I always sit there, I've learned how to debate. Like, if someone has a certain opinion, even if it's about a movie, people go, that, that movie's genius. And I would go, well, wh why is it genius? And not starting an argument, just wondering. And now you're right, you can't do that because if you say one little thing is skewed, you can have a lynch mob coming after you. Well, first of all, here's, here's the first thing. Whenever you're in a debate, an intellectual debate, like, why do you think that movie's genius? The moment you start raising your voice is probably because you're losing the argument. Second of all, the moment they call you a name, then, then they, you realize you're dealing with someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Because if they could debate you, if you're making a point and they call you a name, they've already thrown the towel in on the argument. You say, okay, now do me a favor. Don't call me that name and give me your argument. But give me your argument, but I don't, you don't call me that name. Stupid, ignorant, racist, whatever they want to call you. They do that because they want to end the argument. They can't intellectually debate your issue, so they'll call you a name, and guess what? That's going to end the argument. You exactly. Know, now you know what you're dealing with. You know, and, and so you say, thank you. Can we con continue this debate without you calling me a name? And if we can't, let's just not go there. You know. Exactly. we got to wrap up. Before we go, I want to ask you, how are you dealing with coronavirus and not being able to perform because as you said, you've been a comedian. That's your, that's your job. That's what you do. You've made your living being a comedian or motivational speaker or corporate gigs or MC. So you're used to being in front of people. How does it affect you when you can't be in front of people? Is, is there a hole inside you right now? Or are you just saying, Hey, you know what? It's not that bad to hang out every once in a while and not be in front of a crowd. Well, keep in mind, as a stand-up comedian, I yearn, I long for the stage. I wrote a poem many years ago. In fact, it's at the end of my book called The Sound of Laughter. And I'm not going to do it for you, but the first lines are, as far back as I can remember or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound. So when that's out of my life, of course, it's a big vacuum. I miss performing. I love performing. But I'm also a motivational speaker. And I told you on the four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. Let's just start with perception. I'm not going to do the rest of it. Perception. I can perceive this as a cursing or a blessing. A, a curse or a blessing. You know, I, I, and I'm perceiving it as this is a blessing. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, meeting you. I'm talking to Coop again. I'm doing every day something exciting can happen in my life. Now, you say, well, what possibly is good about this COVID? Of course, people are dying and sick, and that's not good. But all of a sudden, start thinking about what I perceive it this way. I've always loved my family and my friends, but boy, when this is over, I'm going to love them a whole lot more. I'm really going to finally appreciate how much they meant to me. I'll tell you something else. I'm a hugger. I hug my children. I hug my grandchildren. I, I just I just love them and I hug them. I can't do that now. When the time comes, I can hug those kids again. I can't tell you how much I'm going to appreciate hugging them. You know. So this COVID can also be, so we can learn from every setback in our life. We can learn from and say, well, learning from this lesson what will i appreciate more when this finally clears you know uh instead of looking for someone to blame all the time it is what it is what it is you can't change that but you can change your perception of it you know um uh you know at, at, at most of you know 90 100% of life you know i think 10% of it is is what happens 90% is how you react to it you know and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I'll, when I start thinking negative, I change it to a positive. Wait a minute. Something good is coming out of this, this COVID thing. Something good will come out of it. I, again, aside from the deaths and stuff like that. But we're, 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 we're learning some valuable lessons about what is really important in life. You know, what is really important? I, I'll, I'll end it with this. Frank Sinatra, on his 82nd birthday, he died five months later. I was at his house with all these famous house guests. And we, dinner was over. We were waiting for the cake to come out. Frank was off to the side. He hadn't been well. And he was off to the side. The woman he that took care of him was helping feed him. And we were waiting for the cake to come out, making small talk. And somebody said, where's the best place to live? And Gregory Peck said, well, Veronique and I have a villa in France and we like it there. 
Robert Wagner and Joe St. John said, we have a place in Aspen and we like it there. And Frank Sinatra, off to the side with his head down, we didn't think he was listening. He put his head down and he said, the best place to live is where your friends are. And everybody turned around and said, whoa, yeah. My point of this is, here a man, here's a man, arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. Oscars, Emmys, Grammys, the greatest pop singer of all time, a master fortune. In the end, it wasn't about any of those things. It was about relationships, friendships. That's what we're learning during this COVID thing, how important friends and family are. Well, thank you, Tom. This is great. Uh, people, go to Tom's website, tomdreesen.com. It's a great website. Also, his book is on Amazon. Go buy it. Still sending my journey from streets and saloons to the stage in Sinatra. Go get it. We didn't go into a lot of those stories. I know. He's told me some of these stories. He has great stories. And that's the thing. When you interview someone who has a book, you can't get into all the stories because then people are like, yeah, I don't want to buy the book. But this way, we touched on a little bit. So people also, I'll go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 800 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter. That's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.